You are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, York Region. For more information, visit hbcyr.ca. Father in heaven, we believe that your son rose and he rose from the dead victoriously, defeating the power of death, removing the sting of sin, and reigning triumphantly now from the right hand of the Father. And Lord, we pray, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Come and establish your victorious reign here on earth. Come and set up your kingdom. Come and have dominion over all the earth. Lord, thank you that we together can recognize your authority only because of your grace, only because of your mercy do we see that your son is king. Not to us, not to us, but to your name give glory. Father, now as we attend to your scriptures, would your spirit be our teacher today? And would we desire to live in light of your word? In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Happy Canada Day weekend. Very glad to be able to hear, be here with you and worship the Lord God. I invite you to open up your Bibles with me to Psalm chapter 112. Psalm 112. This is the second week, kind of a sequel to last week when we were considering, together as a church, the theology of the fear of God. Last week we asked, what is the fear of God? And this week we're considering, what does a life look like that's lived by the fear of God? If you could have your ideal life, what would it look like? How would it be different from how it is now? Would you live somewhere different? Would you have a different job? Would you have a different wardrobe? What would have to change? What would you have to give up? Our world and God's word have both conflicting ideas about what it means to live the good life. I think everyone's looking to live the good life, but most people are looking to live it on their own way. But God's word has an image, has an ideal of what the good life lives like, looks like. In Psalm chapter 1, when the scripture says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. That term blessed is a word that means fortunate, happy, in favor with God and others. It's the good life. When Jesus said, Blessed is uh, the Meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be sons of God. That term blessed is showing what the good life looks like. And our passage today that we're considering in Psalm 112 says this. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. This is the idea of today's message. The good life that leaves a lasting legacy must be lived in the fear of God. Are you living it? Well, as we do, would you stand with me in honor of God in the reading of his word as we read together Psalm chapter 112. This is God's word. It speaks to us today and this is what it says. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. 
Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, gracious, merciful, and righteous. It is well with a man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. He is distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. The wicked man sees it and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. The desire of the wicked will perish. Church, you can take your seats. The, light, the good life that leaves a lasting legacy must be lived by the fear of God. Today, we're going to learn five traits of this type of life. The good life that leaves a lasting legacy must be lived by the fear of God. Today, we're going to learn five traits of this type of life. Let's have a brief mem- uh, lesson from last week. Turn the clock back. What is the fear of God? Last week, I defined in a technical theological way that the fear of God is a conscious awareness. The fear of God is a conscious awareness of God's holiness and my own depravity. A conscious awareness of God's holiness and my own depravity that evokes an initial sense of terror because of the burden of my sin, but develops into an ongoing sense of awe because of the knowledge of his grace. In humility before God's holiness, we will be struck in terror because of the weight of our sin. But in faith by his grace, God can lift us up to our feet so that that terror turns into sober reverence. And that's the place where we can start to live the good life. So let's look at the traits of this type of life. Here's the first trait. The good life motivates others to worship. Five traits of the type of life that lives by the fear of God. The good life motivates others to worship. Psalm 100 and chapter 12 is a poem. It's a poem that is about exalting God through a life lived by the fear of God. The first three words express that worship. Praise the Lord. It's a poem. It's not a lecture. See, Psalm 12 is teaching us principles of the good life, but it's not, its purpose as a poem isn't first to teach you principles of godly living. It's to artistically express the beauty of a good life so that you appreciate it and so that you celebrate it. See, if its primary purpose was to teach you something, you'd think the ideas that it was communicating would actually be better organized. The ideas that Psalm 112 teaches us about the good life aren't organized with logical consistency because the author wasn't first concerned about teaching you information but artistically expressing the beauty of a life lived in the fear of God. What's the point of this? Why does this matter? Because the outcome of a life lived in the fear of God will motivate others to worship. And when you see a life like this, lived in the fear of God, that motivates others to worship, it's worth celebrating that type of life. It's worth appreciating that type of life as having divine beauty. 
When the writer thought of a life lived this way, he first said, praise the Lord. And then rather than writing a five-point list like on BuzzFeed or giving a, a lecture on TED Talks, he wrote a poem so that you could appreciate the beauty of a life lived in the fear of God. I found a picture this past week that I think exemplifies the beauty of a life lived in the fear of God. It's on the screen. It's uh, painted by the same man who uh, drew that picture that I showed you a couple weeks ago. The man's name is Norman Rockwell. And this painting is called Saying Grace. It was painted in the 1930s and Norman Rockwell was paid $3,500 for doing it. He died not too long ago, and after his death, it was sold at auction. He was paid $3,500 for painting it. It was sold at auction for $46 million. It's a beautiful picture that I think displays what a life looks like in the fear of God. The first thing I look at this painting that I see is I see the elderly woman in the middle and how she's unashamedly practicing her faith in public in such a way that the little boy, maybe her grandson, is imitating her. The second thing I notice that there are three generation of men in this picture. The little boy who's teachable. And then some wayward young adults who are smoking and they see the way that this grandma and the boy are praying and they're both confused, but also intrigued with a sense of desire. And then the third generation to the left, the older man, he's, he's leaving. He's got his jacket on. And he's looking with just indifference towards what's happening. When I see this painting, it causes me to recognize the profound power of a living my faith out in public and encourages me, maybe I can be bold. Maybe I can pray for my male out in public. Maybe I can tell my friends about Jesus. It also invites me to ask, what type of man am I? Am I a humble and ready to be taught the fear of God? Am I wayward but still willing to change because I see there could be a better way? Or am I a hardened soul? And though I may be a youth, I'm completely indifferent to anything God has for me. The good life that fears God motivates others to worship. It's a life worth celebrating, appreciating, but, but that life worth celebrating and appreciating isn't, doesn't have its value in appreciating you or celebrating you, or celebrating me. When we live our lives this way, we're telling God, I'm the canvas, you're the artist, paint your glory, and you take the credit. The first three words are, praise the Lord. Living the good life is, is, is a life that is worth celebrating, but not for you, for the glory of God. When people look at your life, do they see a man or a woman who fears God, and they they see it, and do you want the credit for it? Or are you willing to give God the glory for it? Or are you still trying to paint your own canvas? Are you still trying to hold the brushes and live your own way for your own glory? The good life that leaves a lasting legacy must be lived in the fear of God. It not only motivates others to worship, but also this, it stands with integrity. The good life stands with integrity. I want to now scan through the uh, scriptures and show you a theme that recurs in here about integrity. Look at verse 1 with me. I hope you have your Bible open in front of you. Verse 1, praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. Then the second half of verse 3, look at there. And his righteousness endures forever. And then uh, verse 4. 
excuse me, uh, yeah, verse four, he is gracious, merciful, and righteous. And then again, verse six, the righteous will never be moved. And then again, verse nine, his righteousness endures forever. What was the common word that was in each one of those verses? Righteousness, right? The author is wanting us to notice something, that a life lived this way is lived with righteousness. And look, there's another word that's important that's repeated throughout the passage. Verse three, his righteousness endures forever. Verse six, the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. And then again, verse nine, his righteousness endures forever. What's the other word that's repeated? Forever. The good life stands with integrity. Integrity is having the same character no matter where I am or no matter who I'm with. And the type of character that we live when we have the fear of God is righteous. Righteousness is a behavior that is consistent with God's requirements for human living as revealed in his word. Righteousness is a trait that comes as a result of fearing God and greatly delighting in God's commandments. Not kind of delighting, not moderately delighting, greatly delighting in God's commandments. The nature of true righteous living can only be grasped by understanding and practicing God's word. And while the nature of righteousness is grasped through God's word, the reality of righteous living is that all of us fall short of God's righteous standard because of our unrighteous sinfulness. And that's bad news because the scripture says that the wages for our unrighteous sin is the punishment of death, suffering the wrath of God. But the good news is that Jesus himself lived a perfectly righteous life, yet he willingly died an unrighteous sinner's death. Why? Because that's the death that we deserved. That's the death that I deserved. But in love, he suffered the cost for your unrighteousness so that by faith in him, you could be graciously, freely credited with his perfect righteousness. So Christian, that means if you've believed in Jesus that you stand before God no longer as a sinner, but as a saint. No stains, no blemishes, flawless, not in your own righteousness, but in Christ's. And that means, friend, if you're here today and if you have not yet believed in Jesus and you know that you are a sinner, but if you believe in Jesus today, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Your sins will be blotted out and you will be given the righteousness of Christ and you will be welcomed in as a beloved child of God. Standing with righteous integrity now because of his grace doesn't relax the command to continue to live in righteousness. No, it should multiply the conviction to live in righteousness because you know what it costs for God to forgive you of your unrighteousness. It costs the blood of Christ. And what does it say about my faith if I continue in sin knowing that I'm forgiven of it? Standing with righteous integrity means living in the light of the reality of the good news of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. But maybe you're not interested in that. Maybe you want to live your own version of the good life. Maybe righteousness isn't an interest to you. Maybe you don't want your life to be a canvas for God's glory. You want to paint your own picture. Maybe you're not interested in following God's righteous rules. What will be the outcome of your life 
if you live opposed to God. The scripture tells us. Look at verse 10. It says, the wicked man sees it and is angry. The scripture does not mince words. To refuse to live righteously in the sight of God is to choose to live wickedly. The wicked man sees it and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. The desire of the wicked will perish. Here's the idea. If you want to live your own life and define your own version of the good life, anything that you want will melt away. And the desire of the wicked will perish. What you think is a, a meal that you're st sitting down to a steak dinner is actually a slab of cardboard that cannot satisfy. And that what you think will actually provide you the good life will actually be like the snow that melts in the spring sun. But the good life that stands with integrity actually stands firm and has an enduring legacy that matters for eternity. The good life that leaves behind a lasting legacy must be lived in the fear of God and our legacy will only be as stable as our integrity is. If your eulogy was read today, what would your integrity be compared to? Integrity has the same character no matter where I am or who I'm with because no matter where I am or who I'm with, I know that God is with me and I know that God is watching and I know that my decisions have moral consequences. So in light of the eyes of God and the presence of God, I will choose to live a righteous life. That is the fear of God. Is your integrity as stable as the mountainous Alps or as transient as an anthill on the sidewalk? Is it as steadfast as the anchor of a ship or as wavering as a trash bag in the wind? The good life stands with integrity because you know that God is watching. Are you living that type of life? Turn to Jesus, remember the cross, and the good news of the gospel will motivate you to say no to the world because you have a better life in Christ. Come to me, all who are labor and heavy laden, Jesus says, and I will give you rest. Five traits of this type of life, the good life that leaves a legacy. The good life motivates others to worship. It stands with integrity. And then also this, the good life manages money generously. Wow, that seems like a pretty dramatic change in topic. Worship, righteousness, money. Yeah. Yeah, I believe in conviction of Scripture that the way that we handle our finances is one of the key indicators of whether or not we are living by the fear of God. And I think many Christians can live more like atheists when it comes to their bank account. Whether you're salaried or minimum wage, whether you're white-collar or blue-collar, the one who walks in the fear of God wisely manages the resources God has provided them, God has provided them, with the goal of being generous with the first fruits of what I make. Look at the scripture with me. We'll see this played out. There's actually a progression of the generosity, and it starts with simply saving. Look at verse 3. It says, wealth and riches are in his house. 
Well, you might hear that and say like, whoa, wait. If I live in the fear of God, I'm gonna have wealth and riches in my house. If I live by the fear of God, I'm gonna get a bump on my paycheck. I'm gonna have a, a better car. I'm gonna have a bigger house. It's not what the scripture means. One of the art beautifully artistic elements of Psalm 112 is that Psalm 112 is actually a sequel to Psalm 111. Psalm 111 and Psalm 112 are written by different authors. Psalm 111 is written first, but they share several similar artistic elements. It's like Psalm 112's author read Psalm 111 and, and is, got artistic inspiration from it. Psalm 111 is about the glory of God, his divine works, and how he's to be praised as a result of that. Psalm 112 got inspiration, and the writer thought, what would it be like if we lived in light of God's glory and God's, work, God's uh, works? So he wrote Psalm 112. And there's correlating themes in Psalm 112 from Psalm 111. The idea of righteousness that we live by in Psalm 112 is from Psalm 111. The idea of having abundance, wealth, and riches in Psalm 112 is because in Psalm 111, we see that God provides them. Wealth and riches are in his house because Psalm 111 verse 5 says, He, God, provides food for those who fear him. So the reason that we have wealth and riches isn't because you win the lottery. It isn't because uh, you have some name it and claim it theology. It's because you steward the resources that God has given you well. Wealth and riches are in his house. In his house, I think, means two things. Number one, it means support for your family. If wealth and riches are in your house, that means that your family is supported. If wealth and riches are in your house, I think that also means that you're saving your money, right? They didn't have banks back in that day, but if the wealth and riches are in his house, the owner of the house probably has an accurate account of what is in his house. Financial literacy in our nation is pretty darn low. Bank of Canada released a article not too long ago saying that for every one dollar, for every dollar that the average Canadian makes, they owe 1.7 dollars. That sounds pretty bad. And the Bank of Canada released that information to say like that the state of finances and household finances in Canada is not good. Do you know what's in your bank account right now? Basic financial literacy we can't spend more than what we make. It's the end of the month. What's in your bank account today? Did you spend more than you made this month? Do you know how much you made this month? Do you know how much you spent this month? Christians live like atheists when they don't know what's in their bank account because they forget that what they have in their bank account is because God gave it to them. The good life manages money generously. See, it's not just that I'm going to save, because that in the end of it itself is just stinginess. But there's a progression. The scripture says that not only does the one who manages his money generously save, but they also lend and they also give. Look at verse 5. It says, it is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. When would we lend? Well, in this context, there weren't banks. There wasn't line of credit, really. But I think I know when... I've never done this, but I've, maybe there's a time where I could do this. 
If you have a family member or a friend that you feel like you have responsibility for, and they find themselves in dire financial circumstances, but it wasn't circumstances outside of their control, it's because of bad decisions that they made. Would it be wise, would it be loving just to give them a handout, knowing that they're in their financial circumstances because they made bad, foolish decisions? No, that might actually be enabling more bad, foolish decisions. Maybe the more wise, more godly, more loving thing is to give them money with the expectation that they work to pay it back. That'll help them repent. That'll help them start to learn to live by the fear of God. It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, but not just lends, gives. Look at verse nine. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. That's remarkable. Not only do they save, but they lend and they open-handedly distribute freely. Are you managing your money like that? Maybe you think, I I don't think I can. The first fruits, the first part of every paycheck going to God? I, I don't think I can give 10%. I don't think I can support missions. I don't think I could offer a loan or charity if someone asked for it. I'm barely scraping by as it is. Whether you're salaried or minimum wage, white collar or blue collar, the one who walks in the fear of God wisely manages the resources God provided them with that goal. Supporting, saving, with the ability to lend and give. I want to tell you a story of three churches. One church was in a region where there was a famine and they were in financial need. Two other churches were asked for help. One was in a financially affluent area. The other was in a financially impoverished area and actually being in in tribulation and persecuted for their faith. Which one of those two churches gave to the other one in need? These three churches that I'm talking about are churches in the New Testament. The church in Jerusalem was the one that was in need, and the Apostle Paul asked other churches to support them. And the church in Corinth was that affluent church who was asked and didn't follow through. Look at this passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Paul says to the church, the affluent church in Corinth, this benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. Isn't that remarkable? A year ago, Paul said, we need to take an offering because this church is in a famine. He's like, yeah, we'll do it. A year later, no offering. So now finish doing it as well so that your readiness in desiring to do it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. Your abundance at the present time should supply their need. It's not like they didn't have it. They had it, but they were sitting on it. That other church that was impoverished and afflicted was the Macedonian church. And this is what the Apostle Paul said about them. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty has overflowed in a wealth of generosity on that part. That does not make sense. That is not an equation that's supposed to work. Extreme, uh, uh, severe affliction, extreme poverty, No. How can out of that you give an abundance of wealth? Because they have abundance of joy. Because they know what they have is from God. And because they love their neighbors as themselves. What enables the Christian to be able to give? 
the knowledge that God first gave this to me and it's not mine anyway. Is this a priority in your life? But maybe it's not for you. Maybe you don't give to the church. You think, I'd rather retain my money so I can have a new wardrobe every season. I'd rather, I'd rather keep my money so I can get the latest tech. I'd rather keep my money because I want to see every blockbuster movie when it's in theaters opening day. I'd, I'd, I'd rather be able to go on a vacation with my family. I, I can't give right now. I'm saving for my first home. None of those things in and of themselves are bad. But if you get all of those things and don't give generously in a way that honors God and the fear of him, you will have completely missed the good life and you will have bought into what the world says is good. Which do you want? Do you want the blessing that comes from this world or do you want the blessing that comes from God? In this world, we will have trouble. So relying on the gifts of this world that are only gonna fade away will not enable us to live the good life. But trusting in the giver who gave you those gifts and remembering the principle that Jesus taught us, it is better to give than to receive. That, that will motivate the good life. Store up your treasures on heaven and not on earth, church. The good life that leaves a lasting legacy must be lived in the fear of God. This world is passing away. This world is dark. In this world, we will have trouble. But here's the fourth trait of a good life that lives in the fear of God. The good life perseveres through trials resiliently. The good life perseveres through trials resiliently. Look at verse four with, or with me. The first part of it says, light dawns in the darkness for the upright. You know what this tells me? This tells me that there are gonna be dark times even if you're living the good life. Don't think that if you're gonna follow Jesus, you're gonna be magically transported to Disney World and live in the happiest place of the world every day of your life. That is not what it is to live the good life. There's times of darkness in the good life. But light dawns in the darkness for the upright. What that tells me is that even in the darkness, there is hope. And you can live with that hope and you don't need to be afraid. Look at verse seven and verse eight with me. This tells us how we can endure, how we can persevere through trials resiliently. Verse seven and verse eight. He's not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks on triumph in triumph on his adversaries. How do we persevere resiliently? Trust in the Lord. This isn't some coffee cup theology. This isn't some Sunday school answer. This is an anchor that you can let down in your life. Philippians chapter four, you know that verse that says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything pray in all circumstances. And every time you hear it, you brush it aside. It's because you forget the part of the verse that comes before. The part of the verse that comes before that says, rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to man. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything with prayer and supplication, present your requests to God. You can be reasonable even through the worst of bad news that comes. The bad news of a, a wayward child and their 
foolish behavior or the bad news of unexpected expenses or the bad news of failing health or malicious people who are treating us like adversaries and putting us down at work or school or in our family. But, but even in those times, the Lord is at hand. God is good even at those times. God is in control in even those times. And you can sleep even during those times. And you can have an appetite even during those times. The scripture says, though, that we have to wait. Notice in the text how it says, he will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. Until. That means that there's hope in the darkness. But trusting God means waiting through it. But even waiting through it, you can shut your mind off and go to bed. You can have the appetite to enjoy a meal. Like Jesus, when he was in the boat during the storm, yet able to sleep when his disciples were freaking out. So when your trials are storming around you, when you trust that God is good and God is in control, you can actually shut your mind off with peace in your heart and sleep. Or like in Psalm 23, verse 5, when King David says, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. Preparing a table is where you eat, but eat in the presence of my enemies? Sorry, if the people who are, wanted to take my life and literally kill me, like people did to David, were sitting at table with me, I don't think I'd have an appetite. But David said, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies, and you can have an appetite and eat even when you're fearful because you know God set the table. You're in this position because God put you here. And you can have peace in your heart that's firm and steady because you know he is in control, because you know he is good. Brothers and sisters, what are causing you fear today? What's cause, keeping you from sleeping and eating today? Yes, what that person did is wrong. Yes, that circumstance is out of control, but do you believe that God is in control and that he's good? When you put your anchor there, the fear of God will expel all other fears and you can persevere resiliently through trials. The good life that leaves behind a lasting legacy must be lived in the fear of God. Enduring through your trial right now, Christian, will not be possible unless we live by the fear of God. Here's the final trait of a life lived by the fear of God, and it's this. The good life enables others to flourish. This last one has become quite personal to me, especially I was studying it this past week because I've reached a new threshold of age in my life and I have another child who's recently born in my life and I, I hear God's word say that my life can allow other people to flourish and I want that. I'm done living for myself. I want my life to be the seed that allows other people's lives to be able to flourish. And God's word tells us that we can in the fear of God. Look at verse two with me. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. What does this mean? It means that the blessing that's experienced by the one that walks by the fear of God will translate into the lives of others so that they also can have the opportunity to live the good life. In view particularly is the influence that parents can have on children. But I'd like to speak to my friends in the room who aren't married or who don't have kids. Friend, 
you can have a tremendous, eternal influence on the lives of those around you. You can allow and enable the lives of others to flourish in your school, in your condo complex, at the gym that you go to, and in your workplace. What type of influence can you have? Well, listen to Proverbs chapter 11, verse 10 to 11. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 10 to 11 tells us the type of influence that we can have. It says, when it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices. And when the wicked perish, there are shouts of gladness. By the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted. But by the mouth of the wicked, it is overthrown. What type of degree can you have, single man, single woman, married couple without kids, you can live in such a way that your lifestyle impacts a city. What would happen if you moved today? Would your workplace notice? Would they, your coworker, man, it's like, man, I miss that guy. I really got encouragement from him every day. Would your classmate at school, it's like, I don't know really much about that faith that they practice, but I know that they had a hope that I don't, and I was encouraged by it. I learned the hard way growing up into adulthood through failure that adulthood really wasn't what I thought it was. You might have a degree. You might have your own credit card. You might own a car. You might, you might have your own condo. But, friend, the mark of godly adulthood isn't that you finally organized your life to be able to live independently. The mark of godly adulthood is that you've learned to organize your life so that others can depend on you. Are you living that way? Or is it all about the next fad that you can get and organizing all of your resources around yourself? The good life enables others to flourish. But remember, in context specifically here is parents and the influence they have on their kids. Mom and dad, are you living a legacy of the fear of God? Is your life organized in such a way so that your kids can flourish? From my time in youth ministry, I learned very quickly that the key factor that gives children the opportunity for them to flourish as a human and flourish in their faith is not what parents most frequently thought it was. It wasn't based on whether or not they had a new outfit for school in September or whether or not they had enough friends and enough self-esteem, or whether they had the latest gadgets, or athletic opportunities, or a vacation each March break. It wasn't about the type of school they went to. It, was, it wasn't about whether they were homeschooled, or Christian school, or Catholic school, or public school. It was this and this only. Did mom and dad fear God? And did dad take up his God-given role as leader of the home? In context here, specifically, actually, is men. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord. His offspring will be mighty in the land. Dads, we have no wiggle room for apathy and indifference. Your life will determine the course, may determine the course of your kid's life. I'd love to show you the positives of how good dads can can influence the positive path of their kids, but I think it's more impactful if you hear the negatives. I have some statistics I wanna share here. These are uh, gathered from official government departments in the US, Switzerland, and one independent study that was commissioned in Canada. What effect does fatherlessness have on kids? 
in the US, kids from fatherless homes represent 63% of all youth suicides, 71% of all teen pregnancies, 70% of all youth in detention centers, 71% of all high school dropouts are kids from homes without dads, 85% of all youth who exhibit behavioral disorders in school come from homes without dads. And here's the scary thing. In 2010, the US Census reported that 24.7 million children were growing up without their biological father. Edward, Edward Crook is a professional social worker, PhD, who's a professor of social work at University of British Columbia, and this is what he said. When it comes to the social well-being of children, these concerns, teen pregnancy, high school dropout, these concerns correlate more strongly with fatherlessness than any other factor, surpassing race, social class, and fa poverty. Father absence may well be the most critical social issue of our time, and the need for a father is on an epidemic scale, and father deficit should be treated as a public health issue. What about faith? How do dads and parents influence kids' faith? Uh, in the mid, uh, early turn of the century, a group in Canada uh, did a study about young adults who are leaving the church. It was called Hemorrhaging Faith. And what they found was one of the big significant influences on young adults who still attended church was their parents. In Canada, three quarters of all young adults who still were engaged in the church had parents who maintained a high not low, not moderate, high practice of spiritual disciplines. Like, like Psalm 112, greatly delighting in God's commandments. Young adults who knew their parents regularly practiced the spiritual disciplines of prayer and Bible reading were two to three times more likely themselves to practice Bible reading and prayer. Young adults who had parents who engaged regularly in church were five times more likely to themselves regularly attend church compared to those who had parents who only moderately or lowly practiced and attended church. How about this stat from Switzerland released in 2000? From homes where moms were high practicers of Christian faith, but dads who were low or did not practice their Christian faith, only 2% of kids would still practice their faith as adults. Now, I want to give some hope for moms before I exhort the dads. Let's look at that picture again that I showed you earlier. What, what male, positive male figure exists here in this picture? There's none. There's a grandma and a boy. Does that diminish the impact that the female woman is having on her son? No, not at all. If you're a single mom or if you're in a blended family, moms, you have the same hope of discipling and raising your kids that Eunice and Lois, the mother and grandmother had of discipling the man, Timothy, whom God used with the apostle Paul to plant churches across the world. No mention of Timothy's dad in the scriptures, but tremendous mention of Timothy's mom and grandma. 
Listen to this passage, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 to 5, and chapter 3, verse 14 to 15. Paul talked to Timothy, and he says, I am reminded of your, Timothy, sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, mom and grandma, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Mom, you have the same thing that Lois, Lois and Eunice did with the same power. You have the word of God. You have the gospel. And with the prayers of a praying mom, like the prayers of praying Hannah had for little boy Samuel, your, child, your children will flourish. But dad's in the rooms. There's no room for apathy. There's no room for indifference. Religion is not just another tool in your kid's toolbox so that they can get to live a better life, just like athletics is and just like good academics is. Dads, your faith is more important than your job. Your faith is more important than your hobby. Your faith is more important than your guy time. And your kid's eternity is at stake. My kid's eternity is at stake. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in God's commandments. The life, that good life, that leaves a lasting legacy must be lived in the fear of God. So what should we do? If we want to live this life, what should we do? Well, the wrong response to this message would to think, oh my goodness, I need to go and fix the problem. I'm not spending enough time with my kids. I got to focus on my kids. I'm going through a hard trial. I need to go get, uh, go get talk therapy. I, I'm not spending my money right. I need to go listen to financial podcasts and books. And my character isn't good. I'm not living righteously. I got to read a self-help book. The wrong response would be to now think you need to go and nitpick at your problems. The right response is turn your attention away from the problem and focus your attention on the glory of God. If you see that you are not living in the fear of God and you are not living the good life, but you want it, turn your attention to God. God, allow your life to orbit around the glory of God. Just like you, I, I want my life to be ordered. I want my life to be harmonious so that other people can flourish, so that God is glorified in the midst of it. And the way that we do that isn't by trying to neatly order each package, but it's the same way that planets are held in orbit in space. In space, large masses of objects have a strong gravitational pull. And other smaller masses, when they're come into the vicinity of those large objects are drawn into its gravitational pull and then kept in orbit around it. That's the way that planets rotate around the sun with order. That's the way that moons rotate around planets themselves. And here's the reality. Your character, your, your money, your kids, these are necessary things, but these are the smaller things. The larger thing, the weightier thing that will keep all of these other things in order is the glory of God. Put your attention there first and then in the fear of God, God himself will keep all those things in ordered harmony. In humility before the immensity of his holiness, allow yourself to be struck in terror with the burden of your sin. 
but in faith, by the knowledge of his cross, by the message of grace. Let the Lord lift you up to your feet so you can stand in sober reverence and then humbly, joyfully walk in obedience. That's where we can start living the good life. Do you want it? Let's stand together and pray to our Father. Father, I am small and weak. The scripture says, I remember King David said that even at times he felt like he was less than a worm. The prophet Isaiah compared all of the nations of the earth to just a drop in the bucket compared to God's glory. If the nations are a drop in the bucket, Lord, then I admit that I'm just a molecule. I am so finite. I am so small, but you are so glorious. And thank you that you've shown us the good life that we can live. Oh, Lord God, but forgive us. Forgive us for trying to live for our own glory and not being motivated to live our life so that others worship you. Forgive us for lacking integrity, for being foolish with our money, for, for being anxious rather than trusting in our trials. Forgive us for focusing more on ourselves rather than on others, Lord God, and help us, Lord. Show us your glory, Father that we would fall in fear before you, that we would stand by your grace in reverence of you, and that we would be readied and teachable to walk in obedience, Lord. Revive families, revive communities, and through the church would your glory be seen in our world because we show, can live what the true life actually is. Help us, God, please, in Jesus' name, amen.